remember many years ago, I had my first experience with coon hunting. It was also going to be my last experience with coon hunting. No, no, if any of y'all have been, been through that, been on, on that uh, road. I grew up in the city, but my uh, uh, dad grew up in the, the hills of western Tennessee. And so one uh, late summer, we were there visiting. And that night, I was probably 10 years old, and my dad and grandfather and all the uncles said they were going to go coon hunting. So I said, my goodness, can I go coon hunting too? So I just thought it was a way to stay out of bed. But that was great. We, we, we put the dogs in the back of the pickup truck, and I took several vehicles. Everyone grabbed their shotgun, and um, we headed off. And they, my grandpa already lived in the middle of nowhere, but we went further in the middle of nowhere and uh, pulled off on some gravel road and drove forever and then stopped at some woods, unleashed the dogs, and they took off. They acted like they knew what they were doing. And I just followed the rest of the, the, the guys. I was, I was big. I didn't have a gun or anything, but they had their flashlights, and they were walking, and we traipsed through the woods for a while, and then they just stopped. And the dogs, you can hear them off barking in the distance, and they just sat there and it turned off the flashlights, and it was pitch dark. Now, you have to have, I know, I found some things you have to have when you go coon hunting. One of them is cigarettes. And so all the guys lit up. Everybody lit up. I did not. But everyone else lit up. And you could just see the glow of the, you know, there's the end of their cigarettes as they were there. Now, that was actually, and the reason why I share this wonderful story is this was an incredible time for me because my dad was not a talker. And at that point, my dad and my grandpa and all of his brothers started sharing. And maybe under the cover of darkness. And they shared about, you know, glorious coon hunting expeditions from the past. And, and they shared about the heritage of their family. And as they dug a little bit deeper into uh, past generations, I had an incredible education. I was endeared more to my, my, my dad when that was done. Now, at one point, one of them said, shh, shh. And you could hear the dogs, you know, barking off in the distance. And, and one of them said, they got one treed. Well, it sounded the same to me, but okay. So they got the flashlights, and we, we followed the, the sound of the dogs. We got to the end of, I mean, it was a, kind of a, a clearing thing, and sure enough, these dogs were jumping up against a tree, and they shined the flashlight up there, and you could see the coon's eyes. And I will spare you the rest of the details of this glorious story. Uh, but for just so you know, for a kid from Chicago, this was really like, ah, this was, this was the end of my coon hunting days. Um, several years later, my mom wrote her memoirs. And as I read her memoirs, again, not going to make it to the New York Times bestseller list. Don't be looking anytime soon. But as I read through, it was lots of aha moments. That's why she says that. That's where she picked that up. That's why she does what she does. And it was interesting. As, as I looked into my parents' history, I was endeared towards them. I felt closer to them in a, in a goofy sense. I felt a little bit of pride in being a Harris. I think that that's, on one level, the same as uh, our understanding of Jesus. As we look into his history and his past, uh, his heritage, we learn more about our Savior. It can have an enduring impact on us as well. We've been going through uh, Matthew chapter 1, because when Matthew started out telling the Christmas story, he started out with a long list of names. And the names that we just skip over because we don't recognize, and the ones we do recognize have nothing to do with Christmas. We're convinced with that, so we just move on. But we need to keep in mind that the guys Matthew were writing to, they knew these names with their understanding and emphasis on ancestors. And they, they knew every one of these folk had a story. And as Matthew would list these guys, the stories are popping through their mind. They go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. 
And now, one of the, the, the things that, that Matthew does, as far as why he lists and start off, starts off with the genealogy, not only to let us know that Jesus has to be from the right family, but also that Jesus has to be born in the right place. And he's going to hit that one just several verses down. Because, um, uh, remember, when the Magi, next chapter, the Magi... Looking for the king of the Jews. They figure a good place to start Jerusalem, the capital. So they go there. They go to the palace. And they say, Herod, where's the king of the Jews? Where's he at? Where's he going to be born? So Herod calls in all the Pharisees and says, hey, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? And what do, they, what do they say? They say, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. And he quotes Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So, yeah, everybody knows this. Herod, for granted aloud, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That would be the Messiah. Well, you and I both know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but soon as he, not too long after he was born, he took a hiatus. They split for Egypt. They were there for a while. And then Mary and Joseph went up northern Israel to Galilee area to a small little town called Nazareth. Where Jesus was raised. Hence, Jesus has this title, Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. I think that would have been a little bit more helpful if it had Bethlehem, but it wasn't. Let's see. Next text. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. And they didn't. The prophets don't say Jesus of Nazareth. This was this is Philip's words. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can any good thing come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. He says, Nazareth, everybody knows the one Moses wrote about. It's not supposed to come from Nazareth. He's supposed to be, excuse me, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. What is this deal? Nazareth. And so, so there's this, this issue going on. We find the same thing with um, Nicodemus. Remember, the Pharisees are talking about Jesus and they're lambasting Jesus and Nicodemus tries to protect him a little bit. And so Nicodemus says this, he says, uh, who'd come to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, the Pharisees said, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Actually, some prophets did. Jonah did. Probably they're referring to the prophet. He's not supposed to be from Galilee. He's not supposed to be from Nazareth. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. And so Matthew's letting us know that Jesus is not just from the right line. He's from the right place as well. Now, there are other reasons why Jesus is going to give, or why Matthew's going to give his genealogy. We, we, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, uh, our, the, the man's lineage was, was passed on through the man's side. So it's quite unorthodox, actually, to incorporate women into genealogies. But Matthew picks some women, picks five. And the ones he picks are kind of the black sheep of Israel. And so you have to ask yourself, what is Matthew trying to get accomplished here? Because if he just wanted to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, he didn't have to include any of them. Matter of fact, he leaves a lot out. But he includes them. What's he seeking to do? And so Matthew chapter 1 this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her. 
Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We talked about her. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth and her. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, this is an interesting one because he doesn't even name this gal. Matter of fact, he seems like he wants to point out the fact that she had been someone else's wife, Uriah's wife. Now, you wonder, don't you, why he didn't just say, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, David, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father. Why didn't he do that? Why did he include these? It's almost like he's trying. He wants to to remind them of something. He's going to shine the spotlight. He's not going to just use this gal's name. He's going to shine the spotlight on the fact that, that she used to be someone else's wife. Now, we know her name as Bathsheba. And we looked, actually, at her story this past summer when we talked about the Ten Commandments. But we want to look at it again from a little different angle this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, and I trust you do, Second Samuel chapter 11. You'll turn with me. Second Samuel 11. You know, a way that I would always remember this kind of stuff is, uh, you know, Israel has had three full kings that were overall total Israel. Saul, David, and Solomon. First Samuel, Saul. Second Samuel, David. First part of first Kings is Solomon. It's, it's just, it's just it's a freebie, just in case you're wondering. Okay, second Samuel 11. David and Bathsheba. And again, the question we're trying to ask or answer is why did Matthew include this gal? In the line. A lot of other gals he could have included and he didn't. Second Samuel 11, verse 1. says, it In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab. Now, right away, right? This is the time the kings go off to war, but David didn't go. He sent Joab out with the king's men, the whole Israelite army. They, de- they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, the king, was supposed to be out there. He remained in Jerusalem. And when you're in the wrong place, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. This woman was very beautiful. Now, probably late afternoon, David laid down for a siesta. For whatever reason, he couldn't sleep. Got up, went for a walk. We're going to assume he walked in an innocent enough fashion. Scripture doesn't indict him here, and so we ought not to do that necessarily. We can wonder, but, but so he, he goes walking. And the houses, of course, in the walled city, there's not a lot of real estate to play with. And so the houses are right next to each other. And he's got a house pushed right up against the palace. And he's walking on his roof, which flat roof would have been normal. And he looks down over the courtyard right next to him. And there is a gal bathing. Beautiful gal bathing, it says. And keep in mind, Scripture doesn't say what, what Ruth looked like or what Rahab looked like, or what Tamar looked like, or what Jesus looked like. It just doesn't say that. So when it does, remember, we say, oh, something's going on. So, so this gal was very, very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, hang for a second. Iliam is David's bodyguard. He's Contemporary of David. Roughly, David's probably about 50 here. It's ironic. Uh, Iliam is probably about the same age. Iliam's father is a guy by the name of Ahithophel. 
which just happens to be David's number one counselor. Matter of fact, Scripture says that Ahithophel's words, his counsel was like the counsel of the gods. Incredibly intelligent, sharp as a whip, a neat, neat guy. That's Bathsheba's grandfather. Iliam, the guy who's in charge of making sure David's safe, that's, that's Bathsheba's father. Now Bathsheba is married to a Hittite, not an Israelite, you notice that, uh, named Uriah, whose name means the Lord is my light. Uriah, if you follow back his, his history a little bit. Uriah uh, joined up with David when David was being chased by Saul in the desert, when it was a capital offense to hang with David. When you didn't know the kingdom was going to go to David, he, you, all you knew is he had a contract out on him and all of Saul's armies were coming against him. You might not want to be around him, but Uriah saw something in David that, that clicked in his heart and so he, he threw in his lot with David. Uh, Uriah was, was not just one of David's warrior guys. Uh, Uriah's name is in the list of David's 30 fighting men or 30 mighty men. David's Green Beret, David's special ops, David's uh, uh, rangers. Uh, uh, Uriah is a highly decorated guy. He's all fighting. He's all fighting right now for, for David, for Israel. And so the, the guy, the servant, kind of maybe he knows what's going through David's mind a little bit. And so he's trying to warn him, David, 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 this is Bathsheba. Keep in mind, her daddy is the guy that's in charge of, of keeping you safe. And her husband is a highly decorated man. One of the reasons why you're on the throne, David, is Uriah. And he's off fighting. That's his wife. Now, I've got different questions in my mind. I wonder, no answers, but I've got some questions. Um, how old Bathsheba could be at this point? Well, I don't, I don't know, it doesn't say. 15 to 22 or 3, probably. Um, how come David didn't recognize her earlier? She's a neighbor. Um, did they just move in? How come she has no children? We know she can bear children, but she doesn't have Is she newly married? Is she just a young girl? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But the fact that she's gorgeous doesn't escape David. He has the report read to him, and then verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. You think David would say, it would be a wake-up call. Whoa, okay, I'm staying away from this girl. She's, my, she's, she's married to a guy that's winning my wars for me, and, and, mar- and she's the, the daughter of the guy that's supposed to protect me, and her, daddy, her granddaddy is the guy that gives me wise counsel. I'm going to leave her alone. You'd think he would say this stuff. But then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. Now, this is kind of a... Uh, let me get on, on, a, on a tangent for just a second, guys. You, you notice what's happening here, men. This is really not part of the deal. But David saw what he wasn't supposed to see. And because David saw what he wasn't supposed to see, he couldn't hear what he needed to hear. When you put yourself in a position where you will see what you're not supposed to see, it messes with your mind. It messes with your ability to discern. It can mess with your life in a major, major way. David was not going to just destroy Bathsheba's life. He was going to end up destroying himself and topple. This was going to be the first domino to topple the kingdom. And getting it back was not going to be easy. And a lot, a lot of bloodshed. So let me just tell you guys. If you can't sleep in the middle of the night... And you get up and you walk around your roof, i.e. your library, and you uh, see a woman bathing via the computer screen. It's going to destroy you. 
And so maybe, man, there's just no more message you need today. But to say, this is not something to deal with tomorrow. This is something to deal with now. It's done. Do whatever you have to do to, to fix it. Lots of filtering deals. If you need to, to, to talk, well, let's, let's, let's talk on, on some of the filtering things that you can put on. But very important. Also notice this. Uh, it's interesting that the, the, the word there for, for slept with her, he didn't rape her. It's a consensual term. Um, yet, Scripture doesn't want to indict Bathsheba on anything. doesn't say anything's her fault. So here's the thing again, guys. I'm not picking on guys today, but guys. Uh, 100% of the responsibility is laid at our feet. None of this, well, she was tempting me, and she was a seductress, and she was lonely, and I don't know what happened, and I, none of that will work. 100% of the responsibility is yours. And she's going to have to deal with her own stuff between her and God. But just know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, huge, memorize this baby, right? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God, I love this part, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape. This idea that I, I couldn't help myself. No, 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 that's, not, that's just so not, not true. It's just not true. That we as the leaders in the relationship have a, have a responsibility there. Well, uh, verse 5, the woman uh, conceived and sent back to David saying, I am pregnant. Wild stuff. Again, in the, in the stories, you've got Tamar doing a lot of talking. And, and Rahab does a lot of talking. And Ruth is a loquacious gal. But, but Bathsheba... Matter of, matter of fact, we don't have her saying anything. We got her writing a note. And she's got just three English letters, 11 letters that, three English words, 11 letters that really bring in a powerful punch, don't they? Now, now between four and five, there's, what, two months, maybe three months gap here? I don't know. If you're Bathsheba, what are you, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? Fear, anxiety, worry, struggle. Four weeks have gone by since the time David called you. Now what are you thinking? Greater fear. Greater worry. Eight weeks have gone by since the time you were with David. Straight up panic, right? What kind of anxiety are you dealing with? Because Bathsheba knows and David knows that this is not just an a, a, a embarrassing situation or some humiliation. In this culture, this was a death sentence. Leviticus 20 verse 10. I think we've got that. If a man commits adultery with another man, with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, this is like written for David, right? Both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Oh, this was a bad situation. Oh, my goodness, how in the world are we going to fix this? Well, David, being the wise, creative man that he is, in verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab. Joab's the general. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Now we're going to assume that Uriah answered those questions that David asked. I mean, theoretically, Theoretically, this was the reason why David called him back, right? He wanted to know these things. But Uriah's answers are not listed here, assuming that he gave them. But they're not listed because David really didn't care about Joab or the soldiers or how the battle was going. This is totally irrelevant. He really didn't care. He just wanted to send Uriah home. He said, Uriah, you've been, it's been a long time. You've been away from home. You've got a very pretty wife. Why don't you go home? 
clear. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, what's wrong with you? Haven't you just come from a distance? It's been a long time, buddy. What's the issue here? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah's answer is telling about this guy's character. The first word out of his mouth that the author is going to list, the ark. That's the ark of the covenant. That's symbolic of God's presence, of, of, of Yahweh, of God Almighty. The first thing out of Uriah's, this Hittite's mouth, the ark. And Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are all camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. It was normal when guys, when they started into a battle, when they left for battle, they would make a vow of abstinence until they got back. And he's saying, you don't, David, no, you don't understand. God is out there. And, and all, that's where I need to be, where God is. And, and Joab and the warriors, they're out there fighting for you. And the task that God has for us is not done yet. I cannot be, but be there. If I can't be there physically, I'm there mentally. I will not leave my post, is what he says. And it's, it's just interesting. He's drawn this contrast between this Hittite and David. Now, David doesn't care about the ark. David doesn't really care about Joab or the soldiers. We're going to find out he really doesn't care about the soldiers in a moment. But this Hittite does. Verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. What we've been said, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Plan B didn't work. What do you do? Verse 14, it's getting desperate. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him and he will be struck down and die. Don't you wonder what Joab thought? Joab's the general. Joab's goal is to win the war, to protect his men. Isn't that a general's job? I'm going to protect my men and take care of him. David sends this note, have Uriah be killed. And Joab's thinking, Uriah is one of your most highly decorated. You owe everything to Uriah. Why do you want me to kill him? We're not going to get too much into the, the rest of this text, but it seems like Joab might have an idea what's going on. But verse 16, it says, So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the, the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, not just Uriah. Moreover, Uriah... The Hittite died. Verse 23, Joab sends a messenger, and the messenger says to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot down arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. He sends them back. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. Real, real interesting line. It says, don't let this be considered an evil in your eyes. This, this is not that big of a thing. You know, it's, it's, uh, when we get into sin, it's not that big of a thing. Lots of re- it's, not that, it's not that, I mean, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Come on. 
The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. By the way, that son was to die because of this. This last line, though. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, this is interesting. It's, it's like the same Hebrew that David's going to use when he says to Joab, say to, to Joab, don't let this be considered an evil in your eyes. This line is, but the thing David had done was an evil in God's eyes. David's assessment of where he was and God's assessment of where he was, radically different place. Because sin obviously has a way of dulling our senses and throwing off our rationale and allowing us to see things that are not correct. And it's a good question for us. I mean, and, and, and you know, you've seen people. They're in stuff, and you've confronted them on it, and it's not that bad, and it's not a big deal, and it's not, it's not, it's okay. And it's not. It has, can have that impact on others. It can have that impact on us. So the question is, might I be in something? And the issue is, don't ask your own mind necessarily, let me think this through and rationalize it, because you've got an incredible ability to deceive yourself. But stop and listen to the Spirit. Might you be into something you ought not to be in. What brings us back to Matthew 1. Why do you think Matthew decides to incorporate this story? Several reasons, I guess. Uh, One is, I think, again, he's letting us know that Jesus is for the outsiders, the, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites. Letting us know let the Israelites know. By the way, the Israelites, remember the Jonah, the book of Jonah? Go to Nineveh, preach to them. Jonah gets there, God's grace, huge revival. Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to come. Because I knew your grace would reach these guys. Acts 15, huge issue. The church, should we let Gentiles in? No, no. And then through God's miraculous intervention, they go, I guess so. This is going to be huge for these guys. And Matthew's just letting them know God's plan is always incorporated, not just the blood of Abraham, but the faith of Abraham. And these folks carry it. Uh, Likewise, I think a a reason why he, he writes this is to let us know that spiritual pride blinds us. You know, it's interesting when you think about Matthew's story himself. He's a Jewish guy. He left Judaism be a tax gatherer now did he leave purely for the the money pretty lucrative to be a tax gatherer but if you truly believed the the, the scriptures the old testament you're not going to leave for the sake of money something was was going on uh and yet think of his life he hung out in some wild parties with some wild people folk who would have been anathema in judaism and it's just interesting that when he writes here to these people to these jews who are a little bit puffed up spiritual pride he reminds them, oh, let me tell you about your great-great-grandmother, Tamar. Oh, yeah, that's right. She was a Canaanite. And she lied and got into a deceptive, incestuous, incestuous relationship with this lying guy. And you're the offspring, yeah. And let's talk about, let's talk about uh, Rahab. I wonder how many men she knew before she knew your, your, your daddy. Oh, I don't want to go down that road. She go down. Sorry about that. Let's talk about Ruth. She's a sweet gal. She was a cursed Moabite. And if I don't understand the if I understand the law correctly, one tenth of Moabite blood will not allow you to, to be in the temple or the tabernacle. And you've got some in your veins, don't you? And, and, and what about Bathsheba? 
And what about King David, the man that is the icon for the nation? And you're so proud to be associated with King David. And, and he put the most godly person around, a Hittite, to death to cover his sin. And that's in your, your, your blood. Uh, one of the things in Matthew 121, this is, this is huge. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will do what? Save his people from their sins. He will save the Tamars, and he'll save the Rahabs, and the Ruths, and the Bathshebas, and the Davids, and, and me, and you. And if you don't start, Matthew, Matthew's telling us, unless you're, you're, you're starting with this understanding of, I am in great need you're never going to know Jesus. You're not ready for Christmas. It's interesting. I'm reading uh, Jonathan Edwards' biography. Puritans had a wild line when they were talking about conversion, what, what was required in conversion. And one of the elements, it's like one to five elements, three to five elements, but one of the key elements that had to be there is that they referred to as humility. And that was a brokenness about your own sin and understanding how utterly unworthy you were. And the Puritan mindset, unless that was there, you couldn't be saved. You couldn't know him. You have to start with that understanding of how lost you are. So Matthew's talking to these folks saying, you're a lot farther lost than you think. And these guys are saying, oh, we're from such a spiritually dysfunctional family. And Matthew would say, that's right. That's right. It can't be otherwise. That's the human dilemma. But that's where it starts. I think a, a final reason why he would incorporate Bathsheba, was for the Bathshebas among us. You know, I don't know if Bathsheba ever stopped and thought back to her relationship with Uriah and her godly husband Uriah, and now she's just one of many in a harem someplace. She has no relationship uh, with her husband. I wonder if she thinks what could have been, and maybe she should have been more forceful, and she should have said no, and she should have, and she should have, but now her life is ruined, and she would have never thought her life would have went this way, and everything was looking so fine, and, and, and she's blown it. I just wonder if there's some of us here who would sit back, and we, we, no one knows maybe, but as we stop and we sit and we look back over our life, we are haunted with some stupid thing that we've done or partially did that has altered our life radically. Or Bathsheba. Or maybe we would sit there and, like Bathsheba, maybe we've done nothing wrong, but just by the hand of some idiot, some godless, self-oriented individual or person situation, our life has been altered. And we're saying, my life was not supposed to happen this way. I can't imagine that my, I could not have told you that my life would go this way when I was younger. There's no way it shouldn't have. And now it's over. But this is great, because what Jesus is doing here, and if you think of this for a second, you and I can't pick our, our, our ancestors, but you know what? Sovereign God did pick those in line for Jesus, and he chose a Bathsheba. Tamar redeemed. Rahab redeemed. Ruth redeemed. Bathsheba redeemed. He would even bring through Bathsheba Solomon, the wisest one to lead, lead the, the nation of Israel. And the message would be to you and I, not only is God not ashamed, not only does he want us in his family line, not only can he, but he can take those things, those years that the locusts have eaten, and those, those the situations that we think are hopeless, 
And he can redeem those. His grace covers. He's not going to take the memory away, maybe. Maybe not take all the consequences away. But those things that would haunt us can now be a, a, a reminder of God's grace, uh, of God's mercy to us. And he can use. And he can use. 1725, a, a baby was born in London. His kid's mom was trying to tell him about Jesus from the time he was born. He rejected it straight up. See, his dad was a sea captain, and he was attracted to, to the sea like a you know, magnet to your refrigerator. And, and, and he just had to go. By the time he was 11, he went on his first journey. By the time he was done with his teen years, he'd been six more times learning everything you can about the sea. He ended up on a, on a man of war, but because he was kind of a rebellious sort of person... Uh, when he asked to be transferred, the military let him be transferred and sent him onto a, a slave ship where he learned the, the incredible, horrific vocation of slaving. He ended up commandeering his own ship. And can you think just for what, what does it take to be the captain of a slave ship where you're regularly beating up people and throwing uh, parents who might be sick overboard in front of their children's eyes, who uh, might hear the screams of the families when they're divided. You just don't care. And the, the kind of people who do that, and you're, you're in charge of them. I mean, what kind of horrific, horrific thing. But this guy's slave ship was, was, was in danger one time. It was getting ready to go down. It was getting ready to sink. And, and suddenly all this stuff that his mom taught him when he was little came back. And so he cried out, oh, God, you saved me. Are you real? I'm sorry. And God miraculously saved him. And when he got back to shore, he was done with slaving. Ended up becoming a pastor of, of probably one, the most influential church in London. He had a huge influence on a man by the name of Wilbur Wilberforce, who, if you know the story, started the dominoes for, for just taking out slavery in the Western world. The guy's name was, was John Newton. And John wrote the John 3.16 of songs, didn't he? Amazing Grace. His amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch. He wasn't ready till he recognized what a wretch he was. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, David, Matthew, redeemed this Christmas season. Have you understood why God sent Jesus are, are, you, are you redeemed? Are you following after him?